I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The Other Hand part of the Acast Creator Network. Hello, Chris. Great to talk again. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Other Hand. Uh, today, I think we're going to start by looking at the ongoing situation in Israel and the Gaza. And uh, I think specifically, I'd like to have a little bit of a discussion with Chris about the podcast which we released on Saturday morning, which has elicited a lot of response from listeners both positive and negative. So a little bit of a recap on that. Um, I'm particularly interested by the Argentinian election that took place at the weekend and the results of that. And I'd like to preview the European Central Bank's bonus, or sorry, the European Central Bank's policy meeting on Thursday next. Um, and this comes, this meeting will come a few days after the Bundesbank's Bank's monthly report which painted a pretty bleak picture of where the German economy is at the moment. And you would hope that that will feed into the ECB's rate decision this Thursday. And finally, there's a lot going on in China. Um, Economic growth in the second quarter surprised a little bit on the upside. Uh, But, you know, clearly there's still huge problems going on there with the property and construction sector. The Chinese equity market is performing very strongly and China is intervening again in the activities of a non-Chinese company operating in China, which has huge implications for the um, the Apple company particularly. But Chris, starting on the Israel-Gaza situation, uh, we had a pretty tense podcast, I'll put it that way, last time out. Robust, um, I'd say. Robust. robust. Okay, we, we we fundamentally disagreed on a few things. I mean, I I took issue with your description of the Irish as being anti-Semitic. I, think I didn't that... say that. I didn't say that. And you're making the same mistake that one of our 
commenters who criticized us and said that he was never going to listen to the podcast again because of what I said. I quoted very precise numbers that ranged from 20-something percent to 30 percent of people in a survey who had expressed anti-Semitic attitudes, at least according to how the surveyors asked and interpreted the answers to the question. So that's not the same thing as saying that Irish people are anti-Semitic, just to clarify. Okay, thanks for that clarification. And I, I responded with the comment that I have experienced a lot more anti-Brit feeling, particularly anti-English feeling in this country than I've ever encountered anti-Semitic feelings. And, and I, that, that I, attracted no interest whatsoever, no, the, the anti-British thing, because well, no, I suspect... that the, Yes. Beg your pardon? It did? No, it didn't. It's not no, no, it didn't. And why do you think it didn't attract any interest or comment whatsoever? Because everybody, um, everybody knows it to be true and, and says, so what? Yeah, well, I experienced it again at the weekend with the rugby match. Yeah, as I say, that's tribal rather than racism. But we, we had that discussion before. But you're, you're quite right to say we did get lots and lots of reaction across the whole range of opinions from very negative to very positive. On balance, my read of what we got was that it was on balance positive. One person said it was the best thing that we ever did. One person said that it was the best debate of this issue, particularly the media response to what's going on in Israel that they had heard. So that's very complimentary. So it's nice to get that. But it's a reminder to anybody out there that's either a broadcaster, a wannabe broadcaster, or just a lesson in life that you can't please all of the people all of the time. And that uh, sometimes people hear what they want to hear. Yeah, and Chris, I expressed the view that going back decades, actually, I'd always been hugely sympathetic towards the plight of the Palestinian people. Uh, but that over the last couple of weeks, my sympathies have been very much with the Israeli people. I was accused on social media of being twisted. I, I found that a, a bit strange. Perhaps we should be clear in the messaging we give. Um, I absolutely abhor what Hamas did uh, just over two weeks ago at this stage. And um, I really have sympathy with the people of Israel that were affected by that. But likewise, I have a huge amount of sympathy at the moment for the people of Palestine who have nothing to do with Hamas, who are being absolutely destroyed in many different ways because of the actions of the Israelis. Uh, but that, that there is no right and wrong here. It's, it's just so nuanced. It's very hard to take a firm view on it. But whatever view you do take, you're going to upset somebody. I stand by my remarks, which I probably didn't make in as articulate or concise or coherent a way as possible. But I think your experiences of being criticized for being sympathetic with Israel are illustrative of exactly what I was trying to say, is that put most simply, it's more than acceptable out there in for many people to demonstrate in the streets to express solidarity and sympathy online with the Palestinians. That doesn't attract any kind of criticism or what you got, which is much more than criticism, insults. But express sympathy for Israel and look what you get. And that was my point, Jim, is that, that there are latent anti-Semitic attitudes out there that emerge in all sorts of not terribly overt ways, but certainly in ways that, that I think you experience somebody saying, you are to be criticized greatly for expressing sympathy with Israel. Um, but you don't get that kind of thing. It's not symmetric. It's not even-handed. It's not balanced. That was the point I was trying to make. And I was wondering why it's not balanced. Um, and overwhelmingly, actually, unbalanced. 
that was really all that I was trying to say, um, particularly in the context of media reporting, but also in terms of people's attitudes. Chris, we should just um, thank all of our listeners. Yeah, keep it coming. For, keep for it coming. Yeah. It's great. Good, bad, indifferent is great. Um, and a, a final point before we move on, I note the comments from the Israeli defence ministers this morning saying that the campaign in Gaza may take a month, two months or three months, but in the end, there will be no more Hamas. Um, that is a pretty damning statement to make from the perspective of the people of Palestine, but it just shows how dangerous this situation is, what we have ahead of us. Um, it is very dangerous. What we have ahead of us is dreadful if they do try to do that, because not least from a military perspective, my understanding of trying to engage with a group of people who are in hundreds of miles of tunnels, the experience of the First World War, the Second World War, the experience of the Americans in Vietnam, when you're trying to fight an enemy in tunnels, you are in one hell of a fight that you might not win. And as the Americans fought the North Vietnamese, a lot of whom were in tunnels, uh, they, the Americans found to their cost that uh, it, it isn't as easy as perhaps you, you originally thought. Uh, the consequences of this, as I have said many times, are un unimaginable, although we do try to imagine them. Um, I can't think that any consequences are good ones. One thing I do note is that there's an off. So far, it's all been talk uh, and air power. There have been one or two sorties by Israel on the ground, short term raids over the weekend. And uh, but mostly it's, it's about air power and awful loss of life, awful loss of life in, in amongst the Palestinians in Gaza, but they haven't yet gone in. The Americans have succeeded up to a point, and it might be very limited up to a point. Uh, the Israelis have been stopped from going in in the way that they would otherwise have done by the Americans. And I think Joe Biden deserves a tiny sliver of credit for that in that he stopped them so far from going in. And indeed, some tiny amount of aid has gone in, all that kind of stuff that we've seen about the trucks, a fraction of what the Gazan people need. It, it is it is interesting to see. I mean, Biden really started the ball rolling last week. Um, we're seeing more and more leaders around the world actually visiting Israel. All with the, the aim of stopping them yes. raising Gaza to the ground. Because yeah. it basically demonstrates, I think, clearly uh, they get it. They just realize how dangerous this situation is at the moment. And um, if it continues to escalate from here, you know, it could be an Archduke Ferdinand moment again. Well, it's almost become a cliche, hasn't it, Jim? Yeah. Uh, there were lots of articles I read over the weekend that had photographs of that assassination in Sarajevo, Sarajevo yeah. of the Archduke Ferdinand and his wife being shot by Gustavo Princip in June 1914, the shot that led to the First World War. And a lot of historians are writing lots of articles saying, or at least asking the question, is this the start of yet another series of events that lead to global conflagration. We certainly hope not. And I, I can only state the blindingly obvious, which is that uh, I really hope not. Uh, but the another a great article that I read that made this very point, that carried the picture of the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand was in the London Times on Saturday, written by a historian called Dominic Sandbrook, who made another point about history other than that one about the First World War, which was even bleaker, if honest, Jim, which is that, as you and I have discussed many times, that uh, it's, it's a shame that n nobody really reads history anymore, at least not in the UK. Most people give it up by the age of about 13. But if you pick up any history book, 
particularly of Europe, but any global history book, doesn't matter how long it is, the longer the better. Go back to prehistoric times to the present day, and you'd be hard pressed to find on any given page, opened at random, uh, not to find the word war on it. We are a people, we are a race, we are uh, homo sapien or, or homo uh, stupidus, to give it its proper name, a warlike species. And we have spent our entire history mostly fighting and killing each other. And it's only the last 70 years, really, that that history changed, that there was a bit of a hinge, to use a Niall Ferguson, another historian's term, and that we are at another hinge point. Sandbrook was making the point that war and destruction that comes with it is part of what we are, it's part of what we do. History, if it is any guide to the future, tells us that the last 70 years of relative peace, not absolute peace, of course not, but relative peace, were an unusual time, unique in human history. And then we're just going back to the way we always are. And we're just going to go back to slaughtering each other in the way that we have done in the past. Um, a bleak conclusion, but certainly if history is any guide, that is where we're going, mate. Yes, it is indeed. So much for Francis Fukuyama's end of history. Comment, yes. 20 um, years ago. Yeah. Uh, I think that Fukuyama's argument was, was slightly more subtle, perhaps, than, than people give him credit for. But it was an unfortunate choice of title, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. I know I, I wasn't being disparaging. But um, the title he, says it all, really. Yeah, the title says it all. He's, he's, he's we, I guess we hoped it was the end of history for that very that. reason, that, yeah. that history teaches you does, if it is repeated, we know what's coming next. But if it is the end of history, that's a reason to celebrate. Here's hoping, Amy. Here is. Okay, Chris, Thursday, the European Central Bank meets to set interest rates. Um, today... Okay, I'm going to ask you to forecast two things today, Jim. One, the result of next weekend's Rugby World Cup final. And I know how deep an interest you take in that sport, so I, I'll expect that to be a very brief conversation. But more importantly, what is the ECB going to do on Thursday? Well, the Bundesbank published its monthly commentary earlier this week. Um, it said that the German economy likely contracted in the third quarter. We don't have confirmation yet. It cited declining industrial production, a shrinking construction sector, and weakening consumption. So in other words, every moving bit of the German economy is contracting at the moment. Um, and if that third quarter prognosis does prove correct, it's four straight quarters of negative or flat growth in the German economy. And Germany, as the Eurozone's largest economic bloc out of the 20, clearly has a huge impact on the overall euro area, on inflation, and particularly on what the European Central Bank does with interest rates. Um, European inflation is coming down, albeit more stubbornly than was expected. But there's, there's, there's reasons, there's good reasons for that. Uh, but if you look at most economic indicators across the euro area, uh, it's an economy that is bouncing along the bottom and that still has to feel the full effects of uh, the cumulative rate tightening we've seen of 4.5% since the end of July of 2022. So, you know, it's it seems pretty obvious to me you're going to see the real impact of those rate increases to gradually feed through the European economy. So I think if the European Central Bank decided to increase interest rates this week, it would be a barmy decision. And I would put it up there in the same light as the decision that was taken by the UK electorate to vote to leave the European Union 
back in June 2016. Wow, that's a big um, call, Jim. Yeah, I, I, it is a big call. I, I think it'd be a crazy thing to do, Chris, I have to say. And I think it could really be um, a tipping point for sentiment across the Eurozone economy. And uh, maybe I'm being a bit of a drama king here, but um, it just does strike me that it would be a mad decision to make. I cannot see the economic rationale for it at this stage. Do you think they're going to do it? No, I don't actually. I think rates will be left unchanged, but I do think that the statement that will come out from Christine Lagarde afterwards will continue to talk about the persistence and evil of inflation and that they remain in inflation-fighting mode. Um, They will be data-watching a little bit like what Powell said last week. Uh, But um, I I don't think they will increase rates. And if I'm proved wrong, I will just give up. Well, I don't think you'll give up, Jim. I need somebody else to speak to on this podcast. What about my second question? Um, Oh, I think New Zealand will win. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. All right, so we're not expecting much from the, at least we're hoping for not very much from the European Central Bank this week, and that it will be a disaster if they put up interest rates. On our podcast on uh, Friday or Saturday, Jim, last weekend, I uh, had a right old go at the Fed, and in particular its chairman. That kind of got lost in that broader discussion, much more important discussion about Israel and Palestine and and Hamas and all the rest of it. So I, I just wanted to, uh, in a sense, rehash that discussion, but in the context of a very, very good piece that Mohammed El-Aryan has written for Bloomberg today. El-Aryan is a former chief executive officer of PIMCO, a giant in fund management. He's currently president of Queen's College, Cambridge. He's chief economic advisor at the insurance company Alliance and chairman of a fund management company, authors of many books. I just He's recently written a book with Gordon Brown, ex-Prime Minister of the UK. And dare I say it, Jim, I don't know whether you've seen this. You probably haven't because it's only just out. This article um, could have been written by me. Well, actually, it couldn't because it's much better written than I ever do and much more eloquent. But uh, all of the sentiments that I have... Humanity doesn't suit you, Chris. Thank you very much, Jim, for uh, for those kind words. All of the sentiments expressed in this article are ones that you've heard me stumble towards in recent podcasts. It begins by saying greater stability in U.S. treasuries, that's the all-important U.S. government bond market, is needed for the smooth functioning of other segments of the financial market, housing, and the economy more broadly, both in America and beyond. And uh, to say that the government bond market, something we've been prattling on about, 
To say that the government bond market has been unusually unstable would be an understatement. Recent weeks have seen eye-popping intraday moves in yields, uncertain auctions, and periodic concerns about liquidity and financial stability. Treasury yields, those are bond yields, the cost of government borrowing in the United States and therefore elsewhere. These yields serve as benchmarks for the pricing of a whole range of borrowing and lending by households, businesses and governments. They influence mortgage rates and the functioning of the housing market. They impact the stability of financial institutions and the system as a whole. And their moves spill over to other countries, financial markets and economies, be they advanced or developing. Have you heard somebody say that something like that before, Jim? Uh, I have indeed, Chris. It's something you, you can't think where. You're, when you remember, just let me know, will you? I will indeed. Thank you very much. Okay. Now, unfortunately, Fed communications has tended to impart volatility rather than stability to the bond market in recent years. You need, I start, I'm quoting here, by the way, you need only look at last week's event at the Economic Club of New York, where within less than an hour, comments by Fed Chair Jerome Powell drove the yield on the 10-year bond to fall below 4.9, only to reverse course and surge up to 4.99 and sub- subsequently change course yet again. This type of volatility during episodes of intense Fed communication has been shown by a Center for Economic Policy Research study to be a substantial multiple of what has occurred under previous Fed chair people. That's a polite way of saying that Jerome Powell is the source of all this instability. It goes on and on. Okay, all of this results in a configuration that calls for a stabilizing force in this crucial market, which by the way, today for a while, who knows, it may go back, may go up, may go down, was over 5%, an important benchmark that it hasn't seen since 1997. All of this results, I'm quoting again, in a configuration that calls for a stabilizing force in this crucial market. What's needed is for the Fed to pivot from being volatility-inducing. That's economists speak for saying the Fed needs to stop screwing up. The Fed must pivot from being volatility-inducing to be stability-enhancing. And uh, he says that Powell has got to do three things. And you may have heard these before. Tell me if you can remember where you've heard these things before, Jim. First, it's got to pivot its forward policy guidance from excessive dependence on backward-looking data to combining data dependency with a more clearly articulated economic vision. It's got to look forward. It really is ridiculous that it's not. Um, It's got to accelerate the revamping of an outdated monetary policy framework to reflect the shift in the macroeconomy from a world of insufficient aggregate demand to where supply is insufficiently flexible. That's an important point that we could spend a whole podcast on. The third thing it needs to do, which I think is absolutely fascinating, Al Arian says they've got to think about a 3% inflation target not a 2% inflation target. So Arian, who has been a consistent critic of the Fed all through this, from when it had interest rates too low to what it's doing at the moment, is, I think, coming up with three very, very good points here. And he's essentially screaming in the way that I was yelling on the weekend. The Fed has got to stop screwing with the bond market because if it keeps doing what it's doing, it's going to cause a financial accident. We don't know where that's likely to occur. My favorite is going to be, well, I've got a joint favorite, actually. I'm going to hedge my bets. The housing market will get blown up by these bond yields with mortgage rates at around 8% in the States. It seems to me to be inevitable. And the other thing that will go perhaps big time is the stock market, in which case, in either case, we're all in trouble. 
End of rant, Jim. I know you complained bitterly over the weekend that you don't get a word in edgeways on these podcasts anymore. The floor is yours. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Chris. Yeah, I had, I had difficulty breaking you from your from your monologue on Saturday's podcast. Uh, but anyway, I, I, I love your passion. Um, yeah, I mean, what what he wrote in Bloomberg Alarian is it makes perfect sense. I mean, it does mirror very closely discussions we've been having in recent podcasts um, and, you know, the, the recency bias and the data dependency certainly is a very dangerous thing for a central banker because central bankers are meant to take a very forward looking view of the world. And uh, clearly they have lost faith actually in the ability of their models to work, to forecast the future. So uh, they are, they are certainly reverting to a backward looking view rather than a forward looking view. Uh, so basically, they should just come out and admit we haven't a clue where inflation is going. Um, I could yeah, devise a very simple, shall I call it quasi-intelligence, artificial intelligence system. It would be a three three lines of computer code that would set interest rates on the basis of backward-looking economic data. You don't need a committee of the great and the good all being paid large sums of money to do this. Would you agree? Absolutely. Big time. Yeah. Hugely. Uh, but how I'm, worried are you about the stability of the financial system, Jim? Uh, very concerned, Chris. When you when you superimpose the global geopolitical background at the moment, I mean it's it's truly awful. Um, I think there are nineteen wars going on on the planet at the moment that are officially classified as wars. That's absolutely phenomenal. And um, you then look at what's happening bond yields, as you describe. Uh, you look at what central bankers are doing. Uh, the thing that surprises me more than anything else actually is the resilience that equity markets have shown. 2022 was a bad year. Global markets on average were down by just over 16%. But this year to date, equity markets, despite the odd little bit of volatility, are incredibly strong. To me, that does defy logic. It does demonstrate a serious misconnect. And while we cannot and should not give investment advice you'd be really, really concerned at the moment about the sustainability of current equity market levels. Having said that, they'll probably be up another 20% in the next three or four months. I doubt it. Uh, I just think it's an incredibly risky environment at the moment. And if you turn your mind back to last March, when we were starting to see a few US banks get into serious difficulty, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, and I think it was First Citizens was the third one. Uh, a, a, a lot of the explanation being given at that stage was, you know, rising bond yields, but also the aggressive interest rate tightening, you know, and we've spoken about the con there are consequences when you get that sort of monetary tightening. And we've moved on from there. That whole debate around banking, the stability of banking has sort of slipped to the back burner, largely because the US Treasury response was very strong at the time. But the bottom line is a lot of those vulnerabilities have not gone away and yet have to be really concerned, I think, about the stability of the global financial system and markets at the minute. Agreed. And uh, my favourite, uh, as I say, it might be a bit of a joint favourite, but I'm really worried about the stock market. In, in a way, I'm puzzled by what you're saying there, Jim, as to how the stock market has hung in. Because even with that without all of the geopolitical uncertainty and all of the fears that we have over the future of oil and natural gas prices, not least what they've done already, but what they might do if this conflagration spreads. 
if bond yields were likely to stay around current levels, the critical point from a financial analysis point of view is that equities, stock markets, are the wrong price. If bonds are the right price, equities are the wrong price. One of these asset classes, to my mind, is wrong. And no doubt we shall find out which one. Um, I certainly hope it's bonds. I hope these interest rates and yields come down a lot going forward. But at the moment, it doesn't feel like it, does it? No, it does not. Chris, could I just wrap up the podcast in the interest of time by uh, briefly mentioning what's going on in Argentina at the moment? And I think dating back to the aftermath of the global financial crisis in 2007, 2008 and subsequent years, um, I've been particularly interested in Argentina because a lot of people were claiming at that stage that we should do what the Argentinians have done and default on our debt. And um, I, I didn't agree with that as a policy option at the time. And if you look at what has subsequently happened, Argentina, um, you know, I think we should be thankful that we didn't actually go in that direction back then. Um, but there was a, an election, the first round of an election in Argentina at the weekend. Um, a little bit of a surprising outcome in the sense that Massa of the centre-left Peronist coalition government, he won 37% of the votes, significantly stronger performance than the opinion polls were suggesting. And the other surprise was that the radical libertarian challenger Javier Millet um, he got 30% of the vote. So these two individuals, Massa and Millet, are now going to have a round off on November 19th to see who forms the next government. But this guy, Millet, is interesting, uh, very interesting, in fact. He's described as a mop-haired economist and TV personality. Chainsaw-wielding economist, I believe. Ch Chainsaw-wielding economist, absolutely. Yet there are photographs doing the rounds of him excuse me, wielding a chainsaw. But anyway, um, looking at some of his policy proposals, he wants to slash the number of government ministries. He wants to slash government spending by 15% of GDP. That's not 15% of spending, 15% of GDP. He wants to adopt the US dollar. He opposes abortion. He denies climate change. He has described Pope Francis who was the Archbishop of Buenos Aires as a filthy leftist and an imbecile. Um, so he's, he's, an, he's an interesting character and he got 30%. So he's in the, the, the runoff on November the 19th. Which one is the chainsaw economist? Milai. Okay, the one who got the most or the oh, least? No, no, the one who got 30%. Okay, all right. Yeah. The, the incumbent got uh, whatever, 38%, which was a little bit of a surprise. But um, there was another candidate representing the centre-right bloc, and she was eliminated, a lady called Patricia Bullrich. I probably got the pronunciation all wrong, so I apologise to our Argentinian listeners. Uh, but she was the candidate that was favoured by business and sensible people uh, because, you know, she was, she was throwing out a lot of messages about fiscal and economic responsibility but she was eliminated in the first round, I think got something like 28%. So she's gone. So we're left with the two. And um, either one of those two um, is pretty damning 
in terms of what they might or might not do. And the backdrop really is that the Argentinian financial system and economy are in a total mess at the moment. Inflation was running at 138% in September. The Argentinian peso is plunging on the exchanges and the country is running out of foreign currency reserves because of the intervention it has had to engage in. So it's, it's, it's a terrible picture. And for such a large, significant economy in Latin America, um, it's, pretty pri- it's pretty frightening. And it goes to show you once again how crazy politics can destroy an economy and a society. Economic policy is always and everywhere consequential. The only debate is over how consequential. Argentina is the economy that I always cite when I talk about economic development and the significance, the consequentialism of economic policy. Because it wasn't that long ago that the United States and the Argentinian economy were roughly equal, almost exactly equal in terms of their state of development, GDP per head, all of the usual measures we use to make those kinds of judgment. We would have said that they were equally developed economies. We all know what happens next. The US has become the richest economy on earth and Argentina Argentina hasn't. And there's a great book written by a journalist called Alan Beatty. He's currently writes a fabulous trade column for the Financial Times, uh, fantastic stuff. But he wrote a few years ago now, a book called A Surprising Economic History of the World, in which he talked about the time between Argentina and the United States being the same in economic development terms and what happened to them over subsequent decades and why they did what they did. And obviously a lot went on. It's to do with the rule of law. It's to do with all sorts of different things. It's because, in part, Argentina turned into a kleptocracy where a few families of the political elite took everything. And uh, But it's mostly about the consequences of good and bad economic policy and other political, socio- socio-political decisions that you take. The rule of law, the, in- the enforcement of contract law, property rights, don't turn into a complete kleptocracy is, is, is a, a, a key message here. So if you... If you want to read about this, it's a great book. But more generally, Argentina is a study in in how you can get things wrong, how you can go from being a relatively advanced economy to being a terribly backward economy without passing go. And every country, every country in the world needs to take cognizance of that. We pretend sometimes that progress is inevitable, uh, that it might be two steps forward and one step backward. But that's a classic example of what you call recency bias, Jim. It ain't inevitable. We can easily go backwards just as easily as we can go forwards. It's all about the choices that we make. We're going to make the right ones. Indeed. Listen, Chris, great to talk again. I look forward to our next interaction. Bye. Cheers, Jim. Bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. hope you enjoyed it our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our substack account www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as apple and spotify if you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements you can sign up to our substack account comments and feedback are much appreciated 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.